I had an idea about doing what I would call a conscience experiment this morning, but I neglected to set it up, so I'm not doing that. But let's talk through it together instead. Okay, so you all drove in this morning, unless you're an ambler and walked across the parking lot. We all entered that way. Uh, so as you're walking in the parking lot, imagine you look down and you saw some money in the parking lot. At what point would you feel compelled to look for its original owner? Anybody hunting down the owner of a penny? Anybody? Nobody cares about a penny. I don't care about a penny. All right, you took a penny from me, I'd probably be thankful. What about a, like a dime? Quarter? So no, no coinage, generally speaking. Okay, what about, what if you found a $1 bill? Just going to start looking for the owner of a dollar bill? Some of you are. Okay? Would everybody look for an owner of a dollar bill? Couple, couple saying no, I'd probably be, be like, huh. And let, now, we're not talking about it, it fell out of the pocket, okay? It was just laying there. Lying there? Laying there? Laying, thank you. Never get that one right. $5 bill. The, the no $1 are going to maybes. $10 bill. Okay? 20 100 Anybody not returning a credit card with someone's name on it? <laughs> okay, well, so at some point, the principle, the biblical, don't steal, your conscience tells you at some point that keeping this moves into taking something that's not yours. You see? But it's, all, it's different for different people. And we could say, well, which is the right? Which is the wrong? Like, well, they're... I don't actually think there is, I mean, credit card kind of <laughs> clear ownership, right? And it's not in a wallet with somebody that I took the money and gave the wallet, but no. But that really does come down to a matter of conscience. When does your conscience kick in? Coins, mine. Bills, yours, right? What is the conscience? This is what we spent last week looking at. My conscience is definition from uh, the book that we don't have any more copies of because you bought them all, which is wonderful. I hope that you've been reading and listening uh, as I have to be refreshed on the what is the conscience, or conscience, what it is, how to train it, and how to love those who differ by Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. Uh, excellent, excellent book. Their definition uh, maybe changed a little bit. My conscience is my consciousness or awareness of what I believe is right and wrong. The voice within that says, yes, right, and excuses us, you're excused. That thing you did, that was right. Or accuses us. No, that thing you did was wrong. And that's the conscience speaking to us. We have, that was the first of the questions that we have. Two other questions uh, this week, Lord willing, next week. This week is, how should I interact with my conscience? Next week is, how should I uh, respond to those to like other Christians specifically, and just other people, when our consciences disagree. That's where we're, that's where we're heading. Uh, but today, how should I interact with my conscience? You have it. I'm not going to reiterate the whole outline from last week. It was like eight or nine points. I don't remember all of them. How should I interact with my conscience? And I, two points does not mean that this will be brief. Interacting with my conscience, two things. First, I should follow my conscience. So you write this down in the first person so you remember that this is talking about you. I should follow my conscience. I should train 
my conscience. I think our interactions with our own conscience comes down to these two things, a few subpoints underneath of them. Following our conscience, training our conscience, okay? We'll start uh, at the beginning on that. I should follow my conscience. Foundation. Uh, breaking God's law, breaking God's moral will. Remember the three triangles of those type of things last week, right? What I think's right or wrong, somebody else thinks right or wrong. We have some overlap, we have some differences. Then we overlaid the final triangle. What God says is right or wrong. You break that, it's sin. Period. But although God's word, including his law, although that is sufficient for us to live a life that pleases him, God's word is sufficient, it is not exhaustive in instructing us according to his moral will. Sufficient, yes. Exhaustive, no. God's word never directly addresses smartphones, streaming services, social media, or swimsuits. But it is sufficient in communicating God's moral will for us to make decisions about those things and a million other things. Sufficient, you shall not steal. Exhaustive, one cent, 10 cents, 25 cents, dollar bill, $10 bill, right? It, does not, it doesn't speak of that type of currency at all, let alone tell us where the line is of where we've crossed from finders keepers to stealing. Sufficient, yes. Exhaustive, no. But, right, here's still the principle. Breaking God's moral will is sin and always sin. That's just the first principle that we need when we're talking about following our conscience. Here's the second, found in one of the three uh, main passages that are talking about the conscience. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, Romans 14 into chapter 15. And in Romans 14, there's this principle that I think is absolutely foundational for us to understand how we should follow it in interacting with our conscience. Paul writes this, uh, sort of at the conclusion of this, this section, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Not the first time he's talked about faith. Now, Romans, he talks about, right, justified by faith. Uh, well, every time one, a word is used, it's not referring to the same concept every single time. In Romans 14, he, at the beginning of it, he talks about it. As for one who is weak in faith. And then there's a response of welcoming him. We talked about welcoming a little bit. So that same type of faith that starts Romans 14 ends Romans 14. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And when Paul talks about faith here, he is not talking about our saving faith in Christ. So if, if he was, we could say, like, what this, all this is saying is, whatever, does not, whatever is not done by a Christian is sin. The Christian is one who has faith. Don't have faith, they're not a Christian. Whatever is done not by a Christian is sin. It's like, well, yes, in a way. Uh, that's not the point that he's making here in the context of this passage. He's talking to believers, all believers, in the church in Rome, some of whom he says are strong in faith, others who are weak in faith. When different believers look at the same situation or decision, one of them can believe that it is right for them to do it. They are strong in faith on that issue. Another believer can look at the same issue and believe that it is wrong for them to do it. They are weak in faith about that issue. Faith here refers to being convinced that in Christ, 
I have liberty to engage, liberty or freedom, to engage in certain kinds of behavior, not clearly sinful behavior, but not everything falls into that, right? Oh, I, I'm free to steal? No. But different ones of you would be like, $1 is my limit, $10 is my limit, okay? Different aspects of that. How does weak and strong apply to that particular scenario? A little bit, little bit tricky, as many times it is. But faith, again, refers to being convinced that in Christ, I have liberty, freedom to engage in certain kinds of behavior. It also refers to what one's faith convinces a person they can or cannot do. Something not exhaustively covered by God's word, looking at an issue and be like, you know what? This is okay. And another believer can look at the same thing and be like, no, you know what? This isn't okay. They both have reasons for that. If it's okay according to God, which we don't have exhaustively listed for every scenario in his word, if it's not a sin and a believer recognizes this is not sinful, they are strong in faith about that issue. A believer who does not recognize this is not a sin from God's perspective is weak in faith in that issue. They think that what God says is right. They think that that's wrong. This means, hear me clearly, all right? Only like five minutes in, better not have tuned out yet. Don't tune out at all. This means that doing a particular thing can be both not wrong from God's perspective, but wrong for you. That's how I would summarize whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. God could say something is not, could, could know that something is not wrong. You could think that it is wrong. And if you do, then it is sin for you to do it. Do you get, do you get what I'm saying? I'd say it again, but probably end up being the same thing, Okay. God says, God knows, not says, it says will be his word. God knows something's not sin. You think it is sin. You do it. What is it for you? Sin. Uh, try to use this illustration with the girls. Still with money. I don't know why I'm using money for all of these things. You walk by a counter, or a child walks by a counter uh, in the kitchen because we end up with just random Dollar bills all over our counter for some, for some reason. One of, one of my kids uh, walks by, sees the dollar bill on the counter, and they were saving up for a doll, and they're $1 short. They see that dollar. They look around. They're like, that's my dollar now. They take that dollar. It didn't belong to them. What is that? That's stealing. That's theft. Hopefully their conscience cries out to them about that, right? That was wrong. You took this money. Didn't believe. Well, well, what if they come up, they tell me later, Dad, yesterday I, I took that dollar. I stole that dollar from the counter. Here it is. I'm sorry. What if I said, oh, that actually was the dollar I saw fall out of your wallet and I put it on the counter. I meant to give it back to you. So was that stealing? No, it was their dollar. That's, that's objective. That's an empirical fact. That dollar belonged to them. Did they know it? No. So was it theft? No. Did they think it was theft? Yes. 
Was it sin? Yes. Right? Okay. What if there's a child who is upset at their mother? Um, happens sometimes. We don't obey and honor as we, we ought to. Mom made them clean their room. Mom said no to a cookie. Mom did this. Mom did that. And they're walking down the sidewalk. And they see that crack on the sidewalk. And their heart is just filled with child rage. And they remember the rhyme. You, you're with me. You step on a crack. What do you do? You break your mother's back. They see that crack, and they are just, they wanted that cookie, and they just stomp on it. Both feet jump up and down. They're going to get their mom back. Okay, so did that cause any harm to the mother? No. There's nothing wrong with stepping on a crack, but what was in their heart? Sin. The choice that they made. Okay? 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. We'll get back to the Bible a little bit safer. Eating meat sacrificed to an idol is the topic that Paul addresses really in both of these passages because you have Christians on both sides of this issue. Christians who are saying an idol is nothing. And Paul says that's true. So eating meat to an, offered to an idol is eating meat offered to nothing. Nothing's happened. It's fine. And Paul says that is true. And other Christians were like, I came out of this idolatrous practice, right? And it seems like idolatry to me. You also had Jews that said, you know, all this meat, this was unclean. So you have Gentiles who, came, who were saved out of idolatry that say, I can't eat this meat. It was offered to an idol. You have Jews that said God's law says we can't eat this type of meat because of its association with idolatry. And there are others, Jew or Gentile, say, you know what, this, these idols are nothing. It's just meat. I do it for the glory of God. They are strong in faith in this issue. The meat offered to idol has been offered to nothing. An idol has no existence. Paul makes that very clear. That's, that's like a quote from his passage in 1 Corinthians. But if you think that it's that type of an association, it is wrong for you. Whoever has, oh no, excuse me, Romans 14, verse 14. That's easy to remember. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing, no food, is unclean in itself. But it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Do you hear the same principle being reiterated here? If you think it's wrong, it's wrong for you. He goes on, says the same aspect of that. This is the same, the, the beginning of verse 23. Whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So as you think about your conscience, you need to recognize this type of a category, that there is something that is wrong for you. And if your conscience tells you that something wrong, that this thing is wrong, don't do it. Follow your conscience. I think this is a helpful summary of this idea that Mark Dever said a few years ago. Conscience cannot make a wrong thing right, but it can make a right thing wrong. Can't make a wrong thing right. If God says it's sin, 
and you don't feel bad about it, it's still sin. But if God has knows, right, God, it's not a sin, and you think it is a sin, a right thing becomes wrong. Does that make, does that make sense? Conscience cannot make a wrong thing right. Clear conscience. Go for it. I'm following my conscience. I don't feel bad about it. Well, God says you should feel bad about it. We'll get to what that is. That's the train your conscience. But a right thing can be wrong for you because you think you're sinning. And if it's your intention to sin, then you're sinning. You should follow your conscience. Following your conscience begins with doing what it says you can or must do and not doing what it says you can't do. And it's the first step. Very simple. It's not very easy because of the desires of our sinful nature that we battle against. We have our conscience saying, here's what's right, and you have your flesh saying, who cares? This is better. This is, this is right. This is better, right? The, the flesh and conscience isn't the spirit, but spirit uses our conscience. It's almost like that's part of the battleground between the flesh and the spirit. You should follow your conscience. You know that you should follow your conscience, but what about the times when you haven't followed your conscience? What then? There's another step in following your conscience beyond just doing what it says to do and not doing what it says not to do. It's just the first part of following your conscience. There's also the step that when your conscience accuses you, which means makes you feel guilty for something wrong that you did, you should clear your conscience. Following your conscience, do what it says to do. Don't do what it says not to do. When you failed to do that, you should clear your conscience. And this involves a humble confession, admitting that you were wrong, that you did wrong before God and before other people. That was wrong. That was wrong, right? Admit that. That's what clearing your conscience is. I had a teacher in college who said the seven hardest words to say in the English language, I was wrong, Will you forgive me? (laughs) I was wrong. Will you forgive me? We don't want to say that to God. We don't want to say that to other people. But when your conscience is laying the weight of guilt that you have done wrong, you should clear your conscience. That burden that you carry around, like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, do what you could do to get rid of that burden. Humble confession is the best and probably only medicine for a guilty conscience. Following humble confession, we clear our consciences, not just by admitting that what we did was wrong, asking for forgiveness, but also accepting the consequences for our actions and seeking to be changed in our ways. This is the fruit of repentance that God works in us. Admitting and then acting, right? Not just stopping, but, but finishing that, changing that, doing everything that you can to clear your conscience in that way. Accepting consequences for our actions, seeking to be changed, is not earning the forgiveness. It is honoring God by doing what is right, which you need to do. Uh, there was income that I had over the last year that I did not want to tell the IRS about, so I didn't. And then the Lord reminded me that I didn't. 
And we had several conversations about how inconvenient a 1040X is. This is not hypothetical. This was this year. How inconvenient a 1040X is. You don't know what that is, and you've just never made a mistake on your income tax reports. And so I made up all sorts of different ways that I could not file the 1040X to correct my income tax report. And I felt good about that. And then the Lord said, but you lied on your income tax report. Yeah, but, but what if, what if, oh, but I was so creative in all of these types of things. And then it's just kind of like, okay. And your conscience like, but you lied. But, 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 but you lied. Finally, okay. All right, Lord, I hear you. Filed a 1040X, state and federal. And hopefully that reminds me. And if, feel a lot better. Paid, all right, didn't just, hey, IRS, by the way, this is wrong. There was something that I read called, uh, I think it's called conscience money. And there's a story, guy feels terrible, can't sleep because he did something similar, just more than I did. It was like $300 for me, by the way, and t- took care of it. It's very inconsequential. Wish that I just listened the first time around. Um, can't sleep at night. Here's $10,000. He sends this letter to the IRS. Here's $10,000. If I continue to feel bad, I'll send more. Didn't really clear his conscience, just trying to soothe aspects of it. Right? But the admittance that you were wrong and then following up and doing what's right. It's like, well, what if X, Y, or Z? It's like accepting the consequences of those type of things. Do whatever you can and whatever you must to clear your conscience. That's part of following it. Do the hard thing that's right. Admitting that you were wrong and making up for it. A clear conscience is a gift from God. If you don't follow your conscience, if you don't clear your conscience, you can damage your conscience. You can damage your conscience in a few different ways. One that scripture talks about is an idea of an evil conscience. This is a, um, can be hard to find definitions of this, but I think that this is what this, this idea is talking about. A conscience that is guilty, a conscience that is bad, a conscience that is evil. Uh, the relentless weight of guilt with spiritual and psychological and physical side effects. Hard to pray about anything when your conscience continues to tell you that you haven't dealt with a particular sin. Hard to talk to people, hard to do all sorts of different things. It can be hard to preach when you have a reminder of sin that you haven't dealt with. So deal with it, right? If you don't, you maintain this type of an evil conscience. Great example of this type of a guilty, weighted conscience is Joseph's brother's. Right? Reuben knows that what they're about to do to Joseph when they throw him in the pit. It's like, no, we can't kill him. So his conscience is saying, don't kill him, okay? And the rest of the brothers are like, oh, we're not going to kill him. We'll sell him into slavery. Then they deceive their father into thinking that he was murdered or, or uh, killed by a wild animal. But they know that that's not what happened, but they assume that they did cause his death, and they know that what they've done is wrong. And then at least a decade, probably more, goes by. They appear before Joseph, not knowing who it is, and when things go south for them, what do they say? This is because of Joseph. We're getting punished for what we did. Every day, every week, every month, every year, how often was their conscience reminding them, hey, do you remember what you did? Do you remember what you did to Joseph? That's going to come back to get you. And then when it did, they were like, this is, this is our guilt. This is what has happened. 
They make amends with Joseph. Their father dies. And then they're like, are we still going to get punished for this? Right? Even having made up for it, their conscience still continues to accuse them over the thing they did. We'll get back to aspects of that. But this guilty, bad, evil conscience is this weight of guilt in our heart or in our guts. It's the Bible talks about the guts a lot of times when it's talking about the heart. There are spiritual side effects. There are psychological side effects to those type of things. There are physical side effects that come from that. There can be eternal consequences as well. Not a loss of salvation, but if you never do anything about your sin, are you a child of God? To avoid clearing their guilty consciences, people try all sorts of things. People try to escape their conscience. You can escape through substances. I'm going to drink myself until my conscience is silent. I'm going to take these drugs to try to numb the guilty effects that I feel. Sometimes we can escape the voice in our head by just adding other noise. Listen to music all the time. Watch videos all the time. Watch on the phone, on the TV. Just going to keep adding in information to try to quiet the voice in my head from reminding me of what I've done is wrong. I'm going to immerse myself into busyness to try to escape this. Maybe just work, maybe in volunteering or doing charity work. I can make up for it. I can get around this, try to escape it. Distractions of hobbies or work or volunteering. We can distract it also. That's escaping an evil conscience rather than clearing it. We can try to distract our conscience. Here's, this, is, this is the definition of our day. Distraction by deflection. This is what happens in our world all the time. Our culture is obsessed with it. Our conscience excuses you were right or accuses you were wrong. Our consciences are always accusing us about the things that we have done wrong. And so the most common way to try to avoid doing anything about the conscience is deflecting. To excuse ourselves, we accuse other people. You know that you did, I did wrong. No, 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 they did wrong. Look, look over there. Look away from me. They were wrong, as wrong, or more wrong than I was. It's just distracting, deflecting, accusing other people. Maybe they are wrong, but so are you. And you're not going to escape it. God's not tricked, mocked, or distracted from the sin that you are harboring. Clear your conscience. Sometimes people just ignore it as well. But Hebrews 10.22 exhorts us to draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. See, it's the gospel that we apply to that, to seek and receive forgiveness from our evil conscience. You can damage it by, by not listening to it, ignoring it, allowing it to be evil. Then it also moves into we could have a seared conscience. See, we don't get to pick and choose when our conscience will speak up. If we continue to ignore it, we build up spiritual calluses or what is often spoken of in Scripture as a hardness of heart. And we might want a callous or a hardness on one particular area, but you don't get to choose what your conscience does and doesn't speak to you about. And it doesn't just affect little things. It affects everything, including our conscience speaking to us about clear matters of sin. 
searing our conscience is what Paul warns Timothy about, those who have. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2, we talked about this passage in our study of 1 Timothy last year. He warns him about insincere liars whose consciences are seared. They stop feeling when they should feel. And if conscience is a gift from God, do you want it to stop working? Is that going to be the blessedness of living with a clean and clear conscience? Is that going to be the way that we can glorify God by living in unity with one another, welcoming each other? Living with an evil conscience can deaden it and sear it so that it doesn't work in warning us. And it may sound pleasant to have a silent conscience, especially if your conscience, uh, like mine, not just on things that I have done wrong, but all sorts of things, is very, feels overactive at times. Might be like, I just wish that I didn't feel bad about so many things. But it is a priceless gift of God for your good. You don't want to live without the warnings of your conscience. There's also a defiled conscience. Evil, seared, the Bible speaks about a defiled conscience as well. I think this is a conscience that is twisted into believing that which is contrary to God's word, calling good evil and calling evil good. There probably isn't an exact formula or steps that clearly lead us from a bad, evil conscience to a seared conscience to a defiled conscience, but I think in some cases it does work in that way. If it's seared, eventually it starts to fester and twist. This is the most deadly, serious condition. Like Isaiah would write about, woe to those who call good evil and evil good who put darkness for light, light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. How, why didn't the people of Jesus' day recognize that they loved the darkness more than they loved the light of the world? Your conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit, but you cannot ignore, sear, or defile your conscience and continue walking by the Spirit and being led by the Spirit. It just doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit is not the conscience, but the Holy Spirit does use our conscience to reveal our sin and to lead us to Christ. Titus 1, 15 and 16 talks about this defiled conscience. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. There it is. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And this type of defiled conscience we do see running rampant in our sinful world. We see those who celebrate boasting, who see pride and arrogance as a virtue. God says it's a sin, and we think it's something to be commended. It's a defiled and twisted conscience. Others celebrate immorality, whether heterosexual immorality or homosexual immorality, and you don't get to just say that one's wrong and be okay with the other. God says both are wrong. But our world calls evil good and good evil. It's so clear. It's everywhere. Our culture celebrates greed and covetousness. Covetousness is idolatry. Maybe even the heart of all sin, wanting that which God has not given to us because God's not good, God's going to withhold, all of those different types of things. Our, our culture, our world loves that. That's what's good. Get yours at whatever cost. Our culture 
Many celebrate even the murder of abortion, calling that good, calling that the way forward, what God has called evil. Maybe you only heard two examples of what I just said. Maybe you only heard wah, 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 homosexual immorality, wah, 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 adultery, abortion is murder. And you're like, yeah, those wicked sinners out there. Let the one, anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's so easy to see defiled conscience in others and fail to see it in ourselves. But this sermon isn't for someone else, and it's not about someone else. It's for you, and it's for me, and it's about us and asking how are, how are our consciences twisted away from God's word. So sin is sin, and sometimes sin is no, sometimes not sin can be sin for me. Sin is sin, and sometimes not sin can be sin for me. Following our conscience can be a little bit tricky. How do we proceed with this, though? Maybe to be safe, should we all seek to maximize our consciences, adding every conceivable rule that we can think of so that we don't sin by sinning and so that we don't sin by not sinning? That we don't do anything. Add just heap on the rules. Maybe that's what we should do. On our trip, this is just Confession Sunday, on our trip, we could barely get our van to drive over 65 miles an hour because uh, we're pulling the trailer and pulling people. It wasn't a problem because that was a safe towing speed anyway. So whether the speed limit was 70 or 75 or 80, it didn't matter. We drove no faster than 65. And one Sunday driving through Wyoming, I commented to Leanne, very ironically, that I was glad that in addition to everything else, is there going to be sway on the trailer? What are other things are going on? Has something come detached? Did we blow a tire? Everything else to think about that I didn't have to worry about speeding. But I spoke too soon. Because as we drove through a small town looking for the interstate, a local policeman kindly reminded me that sometimes different areas have different speed limits. And so just because I can't drive above 65 on the interstate doesn't mean that I can drive 50 or more through a small town. That was an expensive reminder, expensive souvenir. Yeah, I could respond to that by driving 35 miles an hour on every road to make sure that I never speed again. But what if I was driving through a school zone? Then 35 is way too fast, so maybe I should drive 15 miles per hour everywhere just to be safe. But that would be going too far, right? Obviously. It isn't necessary, and it actually isn't always safe. Because there's not just one side that we can err on. There are almost always two sides that we can err on. Driving 15 miles an hour on an interstate is dangerous to yourself and to other drivers. Arguably, you could say, I think driving at 15 miles an hour, the 70-mile-an-hour speed limit, would arguably be more dangerous than driving 10 to 15 miles per hour over the speed limit. Both are illegal. <laughs> In one sense, I think that's the same type of thinking as maximizing the rules in our conscience to avoid sinning. There are ditches on both sides of the path, too few rules and too many rules. And what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, and they didn't create them, but they lived by them, they added to them, is they had piled on additional rules and the earliest, I think, with the best intentions of not violating God's law. God says this, and in order to do this, we're going to not do these things also. He added rules to God's law and held people to them. And in Matthew 15, Jesus rebuked them for this, saying, 
For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So adding to your conscience things that God in his word is not said to add to your conscience and piling up and maximizing rules is not the path toward godliness. Then it's not honoring to God and it's not good for us. And this is like what the Judaizers wanted to do, a group of people Paul opposes in the, in the church in Galatia. With circumcision and Mosaic food laws, they were requiring all Christians, Jew and Gentile, to live according to the rules and stipulations of the Mosaic law. And Paul rejected that, opposed it strongly as restricting the freedom and liberty that we have in Christ. Because we do have freedom, liberty in Christ that does affect our behavior and our decisions. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Why would we who are free put on a yoke of bondage again? The freedom that we have in Christ, though, and this is a little bit more next week, it's less about the freedom to do what I want less about the freedom to do what I'm allowed to do and more freedom from slavery to sin or to other unimportant things. Because just because you have the freedom to do something, here's a preview next week, just because you have the freedom to do something doesn't mean that you have to do it. That could actually bind you to having to do something. Freedom in Christ and the liberty that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 and Romans 14 is a freedom to serve Christ a freedom to willingly and lovingly give up things that you are allowed to do for the sake of others and for the sake of the gospel. Lord willing, we'll clarify some of those things next week. You should follow your conscience. You should also submit your very confident conscience to the lordship of Christ by training it. You familiar with the story of Peter and the vision in Acts chapter 10? You remember reading through that? Peter's up on a, on a roof. Before that, we're introduced to a God-fearing centurion named Cornelius. A Gentile, feared the Lord, but had not uh, converted all the way to Judaism. He gets a vision saying to go and find Peter who will preach the gospel to him. So he goes and does that. And while those people are traveling, Peter is hungry and he's up on a roof praying And he has a dream, he has a vision from the Lord where a sheet is lowered from the heavens by God and all sorts of unclean animals are on it. Lobster and a pig, all this type of stuff. And the the voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And I think Peter thinks this is a test. It's like, like, Peter, do you want to sin? No, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean and I'm not going to do it now. And the voice says, well, don't call unclean what God has called unclean clean. The vision's repeated three times, and Peter's like, what is this about? Then all of a sudden, Gentiles show up at the door, and Jews and Gentiles weren't supposed to eat with each other, fellowship with each other. Peter wouldn't, wouldn't have gone into a Gentile's house as a, as a God-honoring Jewish believer. He's like, I can't do that. But in the course of a a minute, five minutes, 10 minutes, like the story just moves there. Peter trains his conscience according to God's word like that. I don't think it's ever been done faster or better. But he submits his conscience, which his entire life and culture had said, 
Eating this meat or eating with these Gentiles is sin against God. God says, no, it's not. And he's like, okay, let me go. Let's go. Sausage. Gentiles. I want to honor God. Training his conscience, just just textbook. It's not going to be that easy for us. But it was for Peter because he had already decided that he was going to submit what he thought was right or wrong to God. And the training that Christ had, and uh, even as Mark says, like, it's not what goes in that defiles, it's what comes out that defiles. And by saying this, Mark gives the, um, the commentary, by this he declared all foods clean. So he had heard that teaching, it hadn't shaped his heart, this vision clarifies it for him. And he acts to train his conscience to do what he had always thought was wrong, because God told him it wasn't wrong training our conscience. I should train my conscience. It starts by questioning it. Have you ever done that? Your conscience says, this is right. Your conscience says, this is wrong. And it's so easy sometimes to just live by it or wonder those type of things. Have you ever questioned your conscience? Maybe you haven't because up until we started talking about it, or maybe you disagree with me, that your conscience is the same thing as the voice of God, that your conscience is the Holy Spirit, then you wouldn't question it. But hopefully as you come to see your conscience, it can be wrong, like Peter's was wrong in that scenario. God can't be wrong. Conscience can be wrong. God can't be the same as your conscience. That makes sense? So if it's not God, and it is convincing you of moral judgments, then you should be asking it, where exactly did you get this from? Why do I believe this is right or wrong? Is this from my parents? Parents are not the voice of God. Children must obey their parents. As you grow up, you don't have to continue, right, out of their house, your own house. You don't have to obey them anymore. You need to have your own reasons for right or wrong. It can't just be like, well, because my parents said this. Maybe your parents have trained your conscience. Parents, we need to think about this. Family, different between, difference between a family rule that a child does need to obey, but it's a family rule versus God's rule, right? Make your bed when you first wake up. They need to do that to obey God and obey you, but, right, You want to take me to chapter and verse where it says that you have to make your bed every morning? It isn't there. Now, children, you don't do it when mom and dad says you disobey God because you disobey parents. But we need to make sure that we're training our children that there is a difference between family rules and God's rules. And different Christian families who all want to honor God can differ on some of those things, many of those things. Did my parents convince me that this is right or wrong? Do my friends, have they convinced me that this is right or wrong? Has my pastor now or pastor previously convinced me that these things are right or wrong? Any of those things fallible? All of those things are fallible. Has my culture convinced me that these things are right or wrong? The media, any different form, the music that we listen to, the things that we read, the movies, shows that we watch, books that we read, all of these things can be influencing our conscience one way or another, training us about what's right and about what's wrong. And if you think that it's not influencing you, I fear for you. Because that means you're just allowing it to just soak into your soul and train your conscience without thinking. Question it. Start thinking. Powers of discernment to determine what is right or wrong. Parents, friends, pastors, culture, media, or is it the Bible? (laughs) The Bible says this is right or wrong. All right, good answer. (laughs) Got no fault with that one. As long as it's really what the Bible teaches. 
then I don't have a problem with that. Is it what the Bible really teaches? Is that why you're doing it? Question your conscience. And then as you question your conscience, you also need to adjust your conscience. Tools that are used for measurement often need to be adjusted or calibrated. Uh, A scale used to weigh someone or something needs to be set to zero when it's empty, or the weight will be off. Five pounds too heavy, five pounds too light. A speedometer can be miscalibrated to show that you're driving slower or faster than you actually are. One can help you avoid getting a ticket. One can help you get a ticket. Our consciences also have to be adjusted or calibrated to make sure that they are working correctly. And what this looks like is adding or subtracting rules according to your study of the scriptures. Your conscience needs both. You need to add rules to it that's in God's triangle, to use that illustration from last week, and you need to remove rules from it that's not in God's triangle. That's what adjusting our conscience is. And we don't just do that by ourselves. I hope that you never approach the Bible just by yourself because you need the Spirit. Dependence on the Lord and the Spirit to be your teacher on those type of things, to point out to you this is sin, this is not, to guide you in those type of things. And you know what? According to God's will, you don't only need the Bible and the Spirit. Do you know what else you need? Community, each other, to talk about these type of things. And so as we adjust our consciences, as we ask, is this what the Bible is teaching? We do so prayerfully and we do so considering each other as well. Considering the wisdom of those who are older, maybe the wisdom of those who are younger, wisdom of elders, wisdom of parents, wisdom of friends, can't get too much wisdom, can't have too much humility. The difficulty in adjusting your conscience involves As you adjust it, there comes a time when you might need to not follow your conscience. In training your conscience, identifying a rule that you are convinced of, and now you know from Scripture it's not something that God requires of you, requires an adjustment that becomes your conscience says this is wrong, and you say, no, it's not. Or your conscience says this is fine, and you say, well, God says it isn't. I don't feel bad, but I should, right? And that's a little bit easier to do than I feel bad, but I shouldn't. That is a category of adjusting our conscience. And when you recognize your conscience is wrong or out of adjustment or uncalibrated on a certain matter because it disagrees with God's word, then you are called to not follow your conscience. Because God is the Lord of your conscience, This is great, the passage that Eli read today. One author put it this way, you must obey God rather than men, including yourself, including your conscience. Always proceed carefully in these matters and don't proceed on your own. I think this is wrong, but I think God's word says it isn't wrong. Don't just barrel forward. Continue to pray and study and talk about that with somebody else. Hey, this is what I thought was wrong. I'm I think I, I think I thought it was wrong because of this, which is less than God's word. Now I'm looking at God's word and I think that this is okay. What do you think about that? Look at the word together. Discuss those type of things. Take stock of the wisdom that God has given and then submit your conscience to God and his word. And even then, a trained, adjusted, calibrated conscience does not need to always affect your behavior. 
If you became a vegetarian because you thought God commanded it, your conscience was misinformed. You need to adjust your conscience in that case to know that this is not something that God requires. But even when you are convinced in your conscience of that and that the rule is removed and that God doesn't require you to be a vegetarian, it doesn't mean that you have to stop being a vegetarian. Right? You're not bound to do the other side on that. You just remove the rule from your conscience, but you can just continue to act as a vegetarian. Live that way. If, that, if you think that that's good and right and best, fine. If you think it's sin, if you're not a vegetarian, you are wrong. But if you think it's sin to be a vegetarian, you're also wrong. Do you see? So you don't have to change your behavior just because you've changed and calibrated your conscience. Being a Christian doesn't mean being a vegetarian. Being a Christian also doesn't mean being a meat eater. Ah. I've got way too much. We're going to skip a lot. Maybe we'll come back next week. Maybe we'll just come back another time. Or you can all just, I don't know. We're going to push forward. One final point, apart from like the page that I just skipped, about training your conscience. As you grow in following and training your conscience, you may become discouraged in one of two ways. The first way is that the knowledge of your sinfulness may leave you always feeling guilty all the time. This low level of guilt. Another great little book, The Art of Turning from Sin to Christ for a Joyfully Clear Conscience by Kevin DeYoung. He talks about this. You get the sense that Paul is not living a defeated Christian life, moping around, feeling a low-level sense that, quote, I'm a failure, I'm terrible, God's angry at me. Paul lives his days in freedom with a good conscience. He turns, he repents, he confesses, he receives forgiveness, and then he enjoys this wonderful relationship with his heavenly Father. I think most Christians have very little experience with this kind of Christian, with this kind of Christian existence. We go from morbidity to introspection to moments of victory to feelings of failure again. Of course, we fight and wrestle, and yet this is not the same as constant gloom and doom. We ought to put our head on our pillow at night knowing we have been forgiven. We have a heavenly father who loves us and we can have a clean conscience. Mothers who are wired for comparison all the time find this especially hard. They are too quick to conclude, what a terrible mother I am. I must not be doing a good job with my kids. I'm sure they aren't doing as well as they should and I'm sure my house is so much messier than everyone else's. An older mom once gave me these wives' words, Kevin, most parents think their children are either the best children the brightest, most special children in the whole world, like, uh, like ours, or that they are the worst failure of a child. Both of those parents are wrong. What? Oh, man. Both of those parents are wrong. And he says that was a good observation. Hear this. If we walk around feeling all the time like we are a failure as a Christian, a failure as a parent, and a failure as a pastor, we have not grasped the gift of the gospel. This is not what it means to have the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life. How wonderful it is when we turn from self and sin, turn to Christ and Christ-likeness, when we can be clean, forgiven, and free. You walk around feeling vaguely 
universally guilty all the time, but you have come to Christ, then you need to train your conscience and remind it of the gospel. Because you can have this perpetual discouragement that you're not good enough. But isn't the gospel the start of the fact that you're not good enough? Like, didn't you already own that? But that Christ was good enough, and now by faith in Christ, you are good enough in him? That is what the gospel says. Think Satan likes to discourage us and our consciences with vague, low-level, unspecific guilt. And I don't think that that's how the Holy Spirit works. The Holy Spirit wants to convict you of a sin. He knows how to do it. So if you just feel vaguely guilty about everything, you need to remind yourself of the gospel because you're not guilty like that. That's one way that we can be discouraged. The other way is that your conscience will probably, as you just live life, remind you of past sins, even ones that you have confessed and cleared. Your conscience will also become adjusted to recognize deeper, more pervasive sins. It's easier to stop stealing than it is to stop coveting. It's easier to stop yelling than it is to stop simmering in anger. And as we progress in holiness, we also grow in our knowledge of the holiness of God. This has been illustrated by two not parallel lines of progress, right? You grow in godliness, it's bumpy like this, but as you're growing and you're being transformed, your knowledge of God and his holiness is growing like this. And so the sense of distance that you have when you first become a Christian is I'm about maybe this far from the holiness of God. And then after you've lived the Christian life for a year, a decade, a few decades, you're like the distance between me and God is bigger I ever thought it could be. And the only thing that fills that gap whether you think it's small or know it's infinite, is the cross of Jesus Christ. So as you have a bigger sense of sin that God knew all the time was there and was fully covered on the cross, you need to remind yourself of the gospel. The only remedy to keep us from despair is we recognize that God is infinitely holy and our sin is just everywhere. That we just drip with it, even as we grow in sanctification. The only remedy for that is a reminder of the gospel, applying the gospel, reapplying the gospel. Some just call it preaching the gospel to yourself. Oh, we have to do this. We have to do it to each other. You don't have to live feeling guilty all the time. And if you've confessed and forsaken it, then you have mercy. Do you think God missed something? He's omniscient. And he, all of your sin, the stuff you don't even know about, was on the cross with Christ, paid in full. You owed more than you could ever imagine, and you've been forgiven more than you can possibly fathom. That's the gospel. The only way to a clean and clear conscience, applying that, reminding yourself of that. Before the throne of God above is a wonderful hymn, isn't it? There's a verse in that hymn that Annie Nacelli in the book has changed to help it apply to this study. He used to say Satan, and he says this instead. Hear this. When conscience tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Do you believe that? 
Train your conscience by reminding it of the gospel. What a wonderful way for us to come to the Lord's table. A reminder that it is only by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that we are forgiven and and no longer guilty. We should never come to the table with a sense that we are worthy of Christ's sacrifice for us. But we should never stay away from the table because of guilt over our sin. Have you ever thought that? I'm just too sinful to come to the table. The table only exists because we're sinners. No sin in us, no need for the table. Like, this is the solution for that. That's different than the stubbornness of I don't care about my sin. You feel guilt, you, you need to run to Jesus. And the, the table isn't the same as that, but boy, is it the picture of it. Was it uh, Fred or, or, or Ken? Maybe it was Robbie prayed today, right? We don't, we don't come with righteousness in our hands, but our arms are filled with the blessings of what Christ has provided for us. The table preaches that message. That whatever your conscience says right now, your faith is in Jesus, you come. You come to remind yourself of the gospel because of what Christ has done to us. Run to Christ with your guilt, not from him. Because if your faith is in him, he has taken your guilt on himself. My guilt Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My guilt, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. That's true of you. You come to the table now. Receive the elements, and we'll partake of them together. Return to your seat with the elements in hand, and we'll partake of those. All followers of Christ, come. This is for you. Father, Thank you for our conscience. Thank you for your spirit that uses our conscience to remind us of our guilt and to drive us in need to Christ. Thank you for this table that preaches to us that our guilt can be removed. May this be be a sanctifying, uh, rejoicing, Christ-glorifying time for us, we pray. Amen.